him. Father, I thank you for the way that you love us and thank you for the way that you teach us. Thank you for the way that you allow us to network. And even in this age that we have such great technology to be able to share what you teach us to learn from others. Help us to be careful that we don't just read and believe everything that we see. But thank you for qualified and excellent teachers, Mark Lanier, who will teach us today that we would take your word and that we would take it to others as a result of learning and having our lives transformed. Father, we look forward and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do want to thank uh, uh, so many people in this class who volunteer in so many wonderful ways, whether it's the short reads that are handing out donuts and coffee or or actually the Applegates hand out the donuts. The short reads have the drinks. Uh, And I see them in the morning setting up while I'm walking to church. Uh, It's it's so many of y'all who run the cameras, who work up in the booth, who switch all this stuff back and forth, who post it to the Internet. Mark Christmas and his crew who run out all of these copies. We thrive on the back of so many of you who volunteer in so many ways, and as a result, lives are changed. I got an email from a gentleman in Canada this week who's been on our website for the first time watching some of our classes. I can tell from the email, lives change and you make a difference because of what you do for the Lord. And you may not be volunteering and doing things in this class, and, and that's marvelous if you are. It's marvelous if you're not, as long as you're putting your life to work for God and his kingdom, because that's what we need to be about. In this class now, we're studying this year, picking back up to finish off a survey of the New Testament that we had begun, but had to stop to fit into a, a different schedule last year. So let's pick back up with our New Testament survey. This morning we're looking at Paul's first letter to Timothy. We call it First Timothy. I cannot read this letter without remembering a story that I've recounted to you in the beginning. I had that blessed opportunity to sit in Jones AT&T Stadium and watch the Texas Tech Red Raiders play football one Saturday afternoon in 1984. I can date it because I had graduated from law school in May of 1984. And I went back and I got to go to the ball game and I was sitting there rooting only to find out one in row in front of me was my preacher from growing up, Ken Dye. And Ken turned around and said to me, Mark, how is life as a lawyer in Houston? And I said, it's fantastic. It's a lot of hard work. It's, and, I, and I talked to him about it. And he said, I want you to do something. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't care how much you get paid. I don't care how much you travel. I don't care how big a dog you ever become. He said, don't start thinking you're something on a stick. (laughs) Now, I wasn't really sure what he meant by that. I didn't have the Internet to Google it to see if it's an expression or something he just came up with. But I probed him a little bit. After the first half, because it never left my brain. Something on a stick, something on a stick. So I said to him, I said, what do you mean by something on a stick? He said, be humble. Be humble. And, and his point was, 
one that was made out of decades of living and watching and walking with the Lord. I was a young kid. I was 24 years old. But Ken was probably in his mid-50s at the time. And he, he would have been then the age I am now. And he saw this young fellow with a career in front of him and a career that has certain um, certain hooks that lie out there to try and get you right here and, and, and pull you somewhere. And he wanted to make sure I didn't get hooked. And so he gave me wise counsel that I remember 30 plus years later. There's something about the wisdom of older Christians that really makes a difference in the lives of younger believers. And so I don't know where you stand on that gap. If you are older in the Lord, please take your time and energy to give your wisdom to those who are younger. If you are younger in the Lord, please be the person who receives counseling and wisdom. You will grow tremendously if you listen to the wisdom of others. It's not always easy to do. There's a rebellious streak in almost all of us. And at different times in our lives, that rebellious streak is higher and stronger than it is at other times. But I promise you, I promise you, as someone who has dealt with people all of my life, there is great success in being a person who listens to others and can take wisdom instead of insisting on learning things the hard way. You know that to be true, don't you, Tim? We are, we are that way. We, can, we, we are that way. So, there it is. There's a wisdom that comes with age. And I tell you that as we look at 1 Timothy, because Paul is in his later years when he's writing it. Now, there's a school of scholastic thought that says Timothy, uh, Titus, Second uh, uh, um, Timothy were not actually written by the Apostle Paul, but by someone in the school of Paul. I don't agree with that analysis, and we'll cover that in a later class, but not this class. For these purposes, we're going to accept it for what it says, that First Timothy is one of two letters or epistles that Paul wrote to the younger Timothy. They are called, there's a group of epistles that are called pastoral epistles because they're written by Paul's pastoring heart. His nurturing heart to offer wisdom and sage advice to those uh, to, in, in, that are receiving the letter. And so this is the first of the pastoral epistles that we're going to look at. Now, like any letter... This was not just unsolicited mass mailing. This was a very specific letter Paul wrote with very specific intentions in mind. And so we want to put the letter into as much context as we can as we look at the letter. And then the goal behind this Sunday is to cover that letter 
from the beginning to the end in one rapid discussion. We've got how much time? Uh, We've got about 35, 40 minutes. And in 35 or 40 minutes, I want us to cover the whole letter. How many of you have ever received a letter before? Okay. Those of you who haven't, meet me down here. Give me your address. We can fix that. How many of you, when you get a letter from someone who's very dear to you, someone who's important and significant in your life, how many of you take that letter and read the first sentence and then put it down for a few days and then pick it back up, find another random sentence or two and read those and really study them. Spend some great time examining why did my wife choose that verb when there were so many others she could have chosen? We don't do that ordinarily with letters. Now, don't get me wrong. My wife's written me some letters that I have dwelled upon for considerable length of time. But I always read them through once. Right? So let's do that with Paul's letter. Let's don't just take it as one where we're going to now study what Paul says about the role of women in the church. So we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and figure out exactly what it means by a woman who's going to be saved through childbirth. Let's don't do that. Let's put it in context and understand it first in one fell swoop. Fair? All right. So context. Paul's writing the letter. We believe that Paul's writing this letter at an older stage in his life. It's very apparent he's already been released from his first Roman imprisonment. Now, if you try to find that in the book of Acts, you cannot. The book of Acts ends with Paul having a two-year stint in Rome. You'll recall that Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had been put over to Caesarea, Dale, Caesarea to others who read Latin. And in the process, gets shipped to Rome because at his trial in Caesarea, though Paul has done nothing wrong, Paul makes an appeal to Caesar, which he's allowed to do. Now, if you're a New Testament reader, you know Paul's had a hankering to go to Rome for some time. So this is Paul's chance to go. And Paul goes to Rome. While he's in Rome, the book of Acts ends. But we know a couple of things. We know, for example, that the emperor in Rome at the time is Nero. Caesar Nero is is not the, the best. Well, first of all, he's a wretched Caesar. But there were several who were wretched Caesars. Actually, more than I can count. But he hasn't hit the height of his wretchedness yet. Caesar has at this time his main counselor who would have heard Paul's case, Seneca the Younger. We have letters and writings of Seneca still today. Seneca the Younger was smart. He was well trained. He was a philosopher. He was a poet. And he was the chief advisor to Nero at this point in time, would have heard Paul's case. We also know from writings that we have 
None of this is from biblical writings, understand. These are from, from secular writings, but they're reliable writings. We know that Seneca the Younger had a younger brother named Gallio. Gallio was stationed in Corinth, and Paul had, had it already had a run-in in Corinth with Jews, which was looked at or brought to the attention of Gallio. We read about it in the book of Acts. Acts 17, 14. Eh. Eh. That's him inside. I've got my sight wrong. See, just don't trust me. It's 18. Thank you. 18, 12. Gallio was pro-council of Achaia. That's where Corinth was, that area of Greece. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to Torah, to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, I'd accept your complaint. But this is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law. See to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And so Paul is able to leave comfortably. Now, in a way, there's an actual judgment there being made by Gallio. Paul was deemed to not be practicing an illegal religion because Gallio says Paul's practicing the Jewish religion. He's just doing it a different way. And, and, and in that, Judaism was a, a legalized religion under Roman law. It would have been a very nice way for Paul to make his case before Seneca the Younger. So it's not surprising that Paul would be released from that Roman imprisonment. Paul had done nothing wrong, could have been released before if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And the person who's hearing his case, Paul has a connection point with in his younger brother. By the way, Seneca and his brother are very close. You can see it because Seneca dedicates writings to his brother and says, I know him like my own heart. So Paul is released. With Paul being released now, we've got a bit of the context that Paul has that last bit of stay in his life before he goes back and ultimately, before also Emperor Nero is is, uh, uh, killed, martyred. Now, next context, Timothy. Timothy is from an area of Turkey where Paul did his first and second missionary journeys with some intensity in the Derby Lystra area of Turkey. That's where you find him, near the Galatian churches. Timothy's mother was Jewish. Timothy's dad was Greek. Goy. Um, Not a Hebrew. And so into that circumstance and situation comes Paul. Paul leads Timothy to understand the role of Jesus as Messiah. And so Timothy comes to faith and travels with Paul on a number of Paul's trips, his Paul's missionary journeys. History, after the book of Acts, places Timothy in Ephesus. Now, you will recall Ephesus is a city where Paul spent a lot of time. Ephesus is also a city where we have 
Paul's farewell address to the elders, the overseers of the church there in Ephesus. And we read about this in Acts 20, with, starting with verse 28. I want to draw your attention. So look at Acts 20, verse 28. Paul tells the elders to pay careful attention not only to themselves, but to the flock that they pastor. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Look at this next passage. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering for three years, I didn't cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And Paul then commends them to God. So Paul knew what was coming to Ephesus. He was concerned about it. And it seems to have happened with Timothy there. That makes a lot of sense of this letter. So with that as the context or conceivable context, let's look at the letter itself. Paul begins writing as an apostle by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. An apostle in the sense of one that God has sent out, God posted, to go forth in a special, unique, anointed way and deliver the message of God and salvation in Jesus. And so Paul writes by the command of God, and he addresses Timothy as my true child in the faith, blessing him with grace, mercy, and peace. I love that introductory section of Paul. Tim's got his daughter Georgie. Y'all have got your three children. I look around, I see so many people with their children. Many of you have children, you're just not here with them. Some of you may not have children, but you've got people that are children in your heart or children of faith. I want to pause for a minute. And I want us to bless them as Paul blessed Timothy. So I'm going to pray the blessing, and I want you to put them into your mind. And then it's short, it's brief, but let's just do it together, okay? Father, we gather together united in this room and in Jesus, but individually, Father, with people on our hearts. We ask you to bless them with your grace. Bless them with your mercy. And bless them with your peace. In your name we say amen. Amen. So that's the way Paul starts out the letter. And Paul immediately goes into concerns about the false teachers that are in Ephesus. What he had warned the elders about years before has now borne fruit and grown up. There are these people who speak, and they sound oh so good, but they are the wolves that Paul had warned the church about before. Though they can say the words... They're not leading the people in truth. 
And part of it, he says, is a matter of focus. Instead of focusing on things that are right and pure and lovely and of good repute, what these people are focusing on are things that really don't matter. Endless genealogies and random speculations and things about things that just don't matter. And they're not bringing the people into a focus on truth. I was asked this week, I'm, I'm, I'm in trial in Dallas, and, and I was with a, a number of different lawyers this week. One of the lawyers said to me, do you ever listen to preacher so-and-so? And I said, occasionally. And this is a lawyer who doesn't have really any church affiliation. I'm not sure if this lawyer's ever even been to church, but knows this one certain preacher through, I guess, media or something. And said, well, why not? And I wanted to be gracious and I don't ever want to judge anybody else. And I appreciate the fact that people are out there trying to serve the Lord from where they are. But for me, this person does more of a job of being a cheerleader than proclaiming biblical truth. And the preachers I want to listen to are the preachers who are going to stand up and speak from the word of God. And impart what they can to me. Uh, Like Pastor David this morning in an outstanding sermon did. Um, So that's the problem. And, 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 And Paul says, look, these people have lost track of the role of the law. These people, in in Jewish terms, what the Torah was there for. Torah is there not only to read... But with purposes in mind, Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as we call them. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the books of Moses, lots of different names for them. But that is the law. That's the division of books in the Old Testament that are called Torah, the law. And Paul says the law is there. And remember, Paul is a trained Jewish rabbi, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, whom we know still today to have been one of the two most prominent Jewish rabbis in the first century. Paul has got the education and pedigree. There is no surprise that as Paul travels from synagogue to synagogue throughout the land, they always offer to let Paul speak at the synagogues. He's been trained by the guy of their age. So Paul says that the Torah is there, the law is there to teach us right from wrong so that we learn how to behave. In addition to that, it shows us when we don't behave. And convicts us of sin. Which is what drives us to look for forgiveness from God. Which Paul says really comes through the blood of Jesus. That's the atonement. That's the atonement for our sins. Doesn't matter what you do to atone for your sins. You're not going to do it good enough. Jesus did. So with that premise, Paul makes this confession, and it's a marvelous confession. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17 is the confession, and let's look at it for the words that are there. Paul says, 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus. Now, let me back up. This is the one that appointed Paul to his service, even though Paul was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christianity into his adult years. But Paul received mercy. Blessed Timothy with mercy. We've seen that word before. Because he'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And once he became believing, the grace of our Lord overflowed with him in his believing and in his love that are in Jesus Christ. Now he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was not a paid vacation for the Lord. I'm tired of heaven. I think I'll go down and try out Galilee. In the first century with no air conditioning or ice cream. No. He came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of which I'm the foremost. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the biggest sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, who were to put their faith in him. For eternal life. To the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I told you Paul was a trained rabbi. You wouldn't have to be a trained rabbi to say this prayer. For thousands of years. Jewish prayers began. Many of them. Prayers for meals. Prayers for so many things. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed are you, Baruch Adonai, Lord, Eloheinu, our God, Melech Ha'olam, King of all, in essence. King of, of the heavens, not heavens, but King of all. Lord over all. The only God, the King of the ages. This prayer works really well in Hebrew, too. This is Paul. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord our God, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So with this, we go back to the PowerPoint. Paul has confessed his faith in the midst of this flow with Peter. I mean, with, with Timothy. But he says to him, he says, uh, as, he, as he says his prayers, you, Timothy, need to wage war over some of these problems. There are some things worth fighting for in this life. I'm not going to fight with you over... Um, uh, Things that just don't matter. We don't fuss with everybody, do we? But there are some things worth fussing over. There are some things worth fighting over. And that's what Paul's concerned about here. And so he starts it out with prayer. He says, when you're waging war, here's how you start. He doesn't say pick up a spear and go chunk it at someone. You want to wage war, we start with prayer, don't we? 
You got someone you're battling for in your life? You start with prayer. You got a marriage you're battling for in your life? You start with prayer. You've got an issue that you're going to war upon. You start with prayer. And Paul says the prayer this way. He says that prayer starts with supplication. Lord, please. But that supplication goes with intercession. You understand, Paul's telling Timothy, you wage war against these people that are trying to corrupt and mislead and, and, and do damage. But in the midst of, of waging war, he's saying, you seek on their behalf God's intervention. And you intervene in prayer. You pray for your enemies. Who does that sound like? Bless you. Jesus. You pray for those who persecute you. You pray for your enemies. You pray for God's enemies. And you do it with thanksgiving because you know that God hears prayer. And at some point, we've got to trust him with the consequences. I've got a list this long. All right, that's an exaggeration unless you're using a really big font. I've got a list this long. Of people who need to know the Lord Jesus. They need to know the Lord Jesus. And I don't mean simply for eternal life, though. That's a pretty good reason. I mean in their lives today. They need that confidence and security. And that love. And that mercy. And the blessing that comes from walking with Jesus as Lord of your life. And I pray for them. But I pray with a confidence that God hears those prayers. Because it's God who's going to work in them. It's God who's going to bring their life together. It's God who's going to put the right people in the right place at the right time. And i got to trust the Lord to do that. So that's what Paul says. He says, go to war. Now, in the process of this, we have this verse that just sends everyone around the loop once or twice. Like, did Paul just wig out on us? What's going on? That's crazy writing. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I don't think this is as difficult to understand, especially, boy, we should have done this in life group Greek when I was teaching all Greek last fall, because the Greek really helps you on this passage. Um, <clears throat> Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, without quarreling, that women should adorn themselves, respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair. Be more concerned about how you're dressed with your deeds and your actions than you are your apparel. That's at least part of this. Do it. Adorn yourself with what's proper for women who profess godliness. Adorn yourself with good works. Um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a, ma- a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Bob, do not elbow Kelly. Um, we can deal with this and we'll deal with this. I've been asked to do a class on this and I'll be glad to. I don't want to get lost in it right now. Um, there, are, there are social issues. There's... It's a whole different world, and and yet there are principles here. And so we need to look at them and try to make sense. Paul says Adam was formed first and then Eve. 
Paul says, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, became a transgressor. Well, Adam did too. I've read that story. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, that throws a lot of people for a loop. They say, what on earth is she talking about? And you can go read, and it doesn't just throw us for a loop. Read what Tertullian said about it in ancient church history. Read what John Chrysostom preached about it in ancient church history. Read what John Calvin said. This has bothered a lot of people for a lot of time. And when you look at it in the Greek, it's fascinating. She will be saved through childbearing. That's a singular. Saved will be saved. It's a, it, the, the she's built into the verb there. But it's singular. She will be saved through childbearing. And it is future tense. If they, plural, continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. I've footnoted some different views on that. Let me give you mine real quick without going into detail. We'll go into detail in another class. Paul's just been talking about Adam and Eve. And Eve, she, will be saved. Future aspect of that Greek verb. Remember we talked about aspects of verbs. From Eve's perspective in the future, she will be saved. Through childbearing. That's the promise that David preached on this morning. That from the, 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 the seed of man, but from the womb of woman, would come one who would crush Satan's head. That's the promise in Genesis. And that, that is, that is in, in Bareshit, in, in the first book. It says, after Adam and Eve have sinned, after they've become transgressors, after they've fallen, from the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of Satan, even though Satan's able to bite him on the heel. Satan does no real damage to Jesus long term. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy from the seed of woman, the one who would crush Satan, who would bring salvation for Eve, Adam, and all humanity. And so that's within the framework of this. And and, and then Paul shifts and uses a plural verb. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul's then transitioning to, to all. The salvation for Eve and Jesus is a salvation to everyone who walks in faith, love, and holiness. So, with that, we get back to the passage. Now Paul starts talking about overseers. And Paul, in the process of talking about overseers, yes, chapter 3, um, Paul, in the process of talking about overseers, is using a a, a common concept in that time. You can go back and look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can see in the Qumran community and others, an overseer role was a very common role. Now, it's the Greek word episkope. We get episcopal from it. But the Hebrew word is, is, um, uh, um, oh, I wrote it down, Uh, hamivkar is, is... the Hebrew that's used in the scrolls. And it's, it references someone who's older and, and kind of oversees things and oversees for people. So he says, now this is important that you, 
be careful who are your overseers. And he lays out all of these qualifications for them and qualifications of deacons. And he says, this is important because if they're leading you, church is not simply a service group like Rotary Club or a social club like a country club. Uh, it's not a, 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 a legal fraternity. It's not, a, it's, it's not just anything. Church is something very specific. It is the house of the redeemed who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved and those who visit. But the church itself is the house of the redeemed. It's the people. It's not the building. We say go to church. We may mean go to this building, but the church are the people. And so the leadership of the church, it's very important. Because what we're about is something that's a holy mission. We're no longer just skipping through life, zippity doo da, zippity a. We have a purpose. We have a reason for existing. There is something that drives us, there is something that motivates us. There's a calling on everyone's life. God, God nugs at your heart. And if you haven't found him, let and you, and you say, there's got to be more to life. There is. There's walking in purpose, in fellowship with God, in an intimacy that can be found in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus restores the relationship with God. And that's what Paul's saying. So Paul says, just be careful. See, sin, he says, sears your conscience. It distorts reality. You start walking in sin, and it messes with your mind. You may not realize it, and you'll try to justify what you're doing. There is a social, psychological phenomenon. Dr. Bob, if I had time and I don't, I'd get you up here and have you explain it. Which is frightful to think of. But there is a psychological thing that's well studied that says we tend to support the decisions we've already made. And so you start doing things that are wrong and you'll figure out how to do them and your conscience gets seared and you distort reality. And so Paul's comment to Timothy is you need to train yourself in godliness. Just like you work out, just like you're supposed to work out your body. You train yourself in godliness. It takes different forms. I mean, for, for some, training in godliness means biting your tongue when you want to gossip. For some, it means being silent when you want to blab away. Sometimes we even have to let go of telling the best joke in the world. Though Rick and I are fond of saying, always go for the joke. Sometimes you got to let it go because it's too coarse. It just doesn't need to be said. Sometimes we need to change the way we talk. Sometimes we need to exercise with our glasses off so we don't spend our time watching the other people of the other gender. Sometimes we need to do those things to train ourselves for godliness because what we're about in this life is something much more important than figuring out how to eat the next meal or make the next buck. 
So we want to set an example for others. And Paul tells Timothy, don't don't fail to set an example for others in the way you talk, in the way you act, in the way you love, in your faith, in your purity. I mean, how many people have been damaged and shipwrecked because of the pastor's who stand up on a Sunday and preach one thing, only on Monday to be found visiting a brothel. And we're to tend to that. And it's like Pastor David said, it's not like all of a sudden one day you just say, hey, I think right now I'm going to become the world's biggest heathen. It's step by step. It's gradual. It's a slippery slope. And it's called that for a reason. So Paul says, you've got to be careful. Now, he says, he wants you to encourage each other. I want you to encourage the elders. I want you to encourage the young men. I want you to encourage the married. I want you to encourage the widow. And tend to the widows. Real interesting. Paul gets real specific. Hey, if they're under 60, uh, they probably ought to, like, consider getting remarried or something, but they're young enough to where you don't have to worry as much. But if they're over 60, let their kids take care of them if they've got kids. But if they don't have kids, you as a church step in there and take care of them. I'm not related to them. Yes, you are in Jesus. We are one family. Honor the elders. Honor the shepherds and the pastors of the church. Do not begrudge them that they make a living here. Poor Pastor David. He has, a, he has an obligation before the Lord to preach on stewardship. An obligation because good stewardship blesses us. The givers. And he has an obligation to share that. And yet there will not be a time where he can stand up there and share that without someone thinking, well, yeah, he gets paid. He's just working for his paycheck, hustling us for money. I don't get paid for doing this, okay? You don't get me as much as you get him. You just get me this much on a Sunday. I don't get paid, so let me tell you this. Honor your pastors. And do not begrudge them that they get paid by the church. Because if we don't pay Pastor David, no one is going to run the corporation that is Champion Forest Baptist Church. He runs a business. And, and, and whether, whether you, you love him or hate him, you honor him. I happen to love him. It's easy for me to say. And we have no greater supporter in this class. All right. And then Paul says, look after yourself. Be content. Don't chase money. Now, we can look at the passage or we can just know what it says. Chasing money is futile. Paul says the love of money... The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Don't spend your life chasing dollars. Just don't. You're going to chase them to the grave. You'll never have all you want. You'll, it, you're not going to get happy off of it. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. And I'm not saying it. But I'll tell you this. It, God teaches that it is an awesome responsibility. I do not pray for our children to have a lot of money. I pray for our children to do good with what they have. 
I, I mean, I, I've told our children, don't expect you're going to inherit a bunch of stuff. Our goal is to do good with what we have and let you have an opportunity to grow in the Lord, and you will have what God puts in your life. And I'm not chiding you if you're giving money to your kids in your will. That's a wonderful thing to do, and, and, and we do that in our will. But I am telling you, that's not the goal. The goal is not for me to make sure that my kids never have to work. I want my kids to work. I want my kids to know where God wants them in this world and what God wants them to do. That work may be for money. That work may be at home for no money. But I want them doing it. That's important. So Paul says, instead of chasing money, pursue, chase righteousness. Chase godliness. Chase faith. Chase love. Chase steadfastness. Chase gentleness. How many of those are there? One, two, three, four, five, six. That's one a day, and then you get a Sabbath rest. Just, I'm going to chase righteousness tomorrow. Write it on the fridge. Write it on your face. I'm chasing righteousness. I want Monday. The 11th of January, 2016, to be a day where I don't just try to be righteous. I'm chasing it. I'm going for it. I want to chase godliness. I want to chase it like people chase money. I want to chase faith. I don't want to just sit back. I want to know where God is and what God has for me. And I want to know what it's like to trust that. I want to know what faithfulness is and faith is in God. I want to know love. I want to chase it. Well, I'm not really lovable. Well, chase it. I want to know patience, steadfastness, and the ability to put one leg in front of the other when life is throwing you just curveball after curveball. It's teaching you how to just put one foot in front of the other when you don't feel like you can go another step. Chase it. I want to chase gentleness. I want to be known as as the gentle lawyer who kills the other side. (laughs) Paul gives Timothy a final charge, which is just so magnificent. I, I really want us to see it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. The final charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until Jesus Christ comes again. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality. Who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now that's where Paul should have ended the letter. What a magnificent way to do it. But then he adds a P.S. It's like he just thought, oh yeah. And P.S., 
Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, tell them not to be haughty. Tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If we go back to the PowerPoint, what Paul was saying is don't treat anyone like there's something on a stick. So here are points for home. How how am I going to walk this week? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a clear faith. That's what I'm going to do. This week, my goal, my point, I'm taking home. I am going to try and walk in a love that issues from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a clear faith. And as for prayer, I want to follow Paul's teaching, his wise elderly advice to Timothy. That in every place, the men and women should pray. I am going to be a man of prayer this week, God willing. And in worship, Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have an ability to worship the Lord like no one who doesn't know Jesus. Because our sins have been forgiven and we see that forgiveness and we can truly say unto the sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who, who, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, yet we see through Jesus the display of an invisible God. Would you let me bless you, please, as we leave? Lord, I ask you to bless my friends here today. And I ask you to bless them with your grace in Jesus, with your mercy And with with your peace. We pray humbly for our Lord. Amen.